Hello, bashers, and welcome back to another episode of Shop Talk Show. Joining me today is Jared Bailey, uh, the, the dungeon master for his own podcast, Maximum Pew Pew. Uh, whether you're shooting lasers or magic missiles, you got some pew pew. Now, for those of you who might be listening to this on another feed, uh, my name is Jason. I am the player of Tam Westcrown from the Shield Bash podcast. And Jared, why don't you tell us a little bit about Maximum Pew Pew, so our our listeners know what to look for there. Yeah, sure. So, um, again, my name is Jared. I'm the uh, producer and, uh, I guess, principal uh, game master for Maximum Pew Pew, an actual play role-playing game podcast that primarily focuses on the Starfinder role-playing game, as well as other titles such as Tales from the Loop, Things from the Flood, uh, the uh, Free League's Alien RPG, and uh, a few other goodies as well. Uh, we've been running the podcast since about um, beginning of 2018. Actually, it was right after the release of Starfinder. So we and we started with the uh, Dead Suns Adventure Path. So we've been at it for a while. Currently on hiatus right now because of you know the the unfortunate circumstances that a pandemic uh, creates when you're running stuff at the table. But that's kind of the story of Maximum Pew Pew. Um, I'd like to thank you all for uh, having me here. It's uh, it, it's great to kind of get back in the seat and talk shop with uh, like-minded people. Oh, I I would not have it any other way. We uh, um, I don't know if you are familiar with the name of Jason Lillis, but oh it, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well I, I presume so. But like he was the inciting. Yeah, unknown to him, he was the inciting person behind this whole series because I really wanted to talk to him. And then I was like, you know what? Let's turn this into more. And let's just keep talking to people. And it was through his Twitter account of What Do You Do Pods that I started finding all of these other podcasts and set up all of these other all these other conversations. And today's conversation, listeners, is going to be about kit bashing. This is one picked by Jared here. So, Jared, why don't you tell us what kit bashing is? All right. Kit bashing, uh, probably the best way to describe it, kit bashing originates from uh, the model making sort of subculture. So, artists or modelers would take parts from various commercial model kits, like model cars, model trains, and they'd literally bash them together to make an altogether custom, personalized, and unique product. Like in a cartoon and, where you just take two engines, smash them together, and you get a whole different engine? Right. So, yeah. you know, let's take a, uh, you know, like you've got a, a Ford Mustang model and a Chevrolet Camaro model, and you just want to take the best parts out of both and make some sort of amalgamation because you can. You know, like everyone's already putting that model together, you know, per the instructions and painting it or whatever, but it gives you an alter- a uh, opportunity to make something you know, unique uh, for you. And the same practice can be translated into role-playing games. Now, I've been kind of a lawful good person my entire life. Like, I've always been like, you know, do things to the letter. And one of the most important lessons that I learned as a GM is that the rule book is not the law and that I'm not beholden to it. You know, I'm not married to this 560-page document that I purchased. Like, I can bend it to my will, not vice versa. So, um, yeah, a lot of people will can kind of call this like home ruling as well, but it goes beyond like home rules. This is, 
you know, literally taking systems from like other games or creating brand new systems and just sort of plugging them into the game you're doing right now. So, uh, it, there's some examples that you had uh, kind of come up with earlier. Was like it, we discussed in Twitter, like advantage and disadvantage. It's a very good example. So if you're familiar with 5th Ed, there is the concept of advantage and disadvantage where you roll 2d20 and you take either the best of the results or the worst of the results depending on whether you're rolling at advantage or disadvantage. Um, if you're familiar with witches from 1st Ed, you know, it was fortune and misfortune. You know, the um, hexes that uh, a, a witch could put on someone like once a day or whatever. Yeah, so Starfinder, like, which is kind of like our shtick, I don't think there's any official use of uh, advantage-disadvantage, but something I did as part of our game was we created, like, a shared dice pool that allowed people to roll, oh. you know, stuff at advantage or disadvantage, or be able to re-roll D20s to try to um, get a better result. So even though there wasn't anything, like, official in Starfinder, we try to implement it as well. And like I said before, like we started playing Starfinder almost immediately after that hardcover came out at like Gen Con 2017. It was a big book, but there was like a dozen races in it. Yeah. Like there was like the seven new races that it introduced, and there's like five legacy races that were like your half elves and your halflings, your half orcs. And that was it. So yeah. when we were starting to play, like if you wanted anything other than like these dozen races, you pretty much had to steal from other books. Like you had to make it yourself or, you know, we stole from Pathfinder first ed because, you know, there was a ton of races in there. And, you know, two of my favorite races were like the Tingu and the Tieflings. Neither of them were represented yet. So, you know, I created NPCs that were in our, um, game that I had to, um, basically just sort of take rules from first ed and try to fit them around what looked balanced with Starfinder and do that. Now, you know, three years after release, I checked uh, Archives of Nethys. There's 560 races. Yeah, they they, they did not they're, stay low. Like, like, they're, they're, their race-to-class balance is way, way off. Oh, well, and they... One of the ideas with Starfinder is they wanted to wanted it to have that quote cantina feel that like you go in there and there's just like a bunch of different species in there and they've certainly done that now yeah. but I mean you jumped from twelve to five hundred and sixty yeah that was one of the things I had when I started playing society games for Starfinder was it seemed like every other game they gave me a race boom and yeah. it was just like I. I am not going to have twelve characters in the first season. Like what? What right. do I do with this? And you know, it, it sort of offsets how stingy they were in society play in first ed, where like you, you had to, where they introduced like um, like Tingu and Wayang and oh gosh, I forget the other one that was in there. And then you had like Tiefling and Asimar that went there. Kitsune that was the other one. And you had um. Uh, Tiefling and Asimar that were in there a while and then you had to like jump over hoops to try to get like rat folk and then a few years later it's like oh now everyone can play rat folk so the people that busted their butt to try to get a rat folk like they're at Gen Con that specific year you know they get all heated because you know they did all the put all this work in to try to get this character only for like everyone to have access to it like it yeah it traded off um, uh, an Oried boon to get a Kitsune boon, and I was like, "Sweet, I got the Kitsune boon." I gave and it to then, my like, wife. A few that, years later, well, it wasn't even that. Available. It was like two months later. There were like it was like Kitsune is now just a playable race. I was like, "Oh, great, thanks, cool." 
and then like all the uh, well, no, you still had to get uh, boons for the um, elemental ones. Yeah, and then you could like uh, you could combine all four. You could Ultron all four into um, there's a another the yeah the Suli. Like you could just um, yeah connect the, the all story four. of the the four people one playing an Ifrit one playing a um, an Undine one playing an Orid one playing a um, uh, Sylph. And they, uh, and then their fifth person buddy, oh, and one playing a human, and then the sixth person, their buddy, who was the Suli, and they called themselves the Planeteers and Captain Planet. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> it's, that, that's you, you can't have anything nice, can we? <laughs> Are you kidding me? You better not be making fun of Captain Planet because you know what? He's a hero. He is a hero. Something, something, pollution, zero, <laughs> loot and plunder. I don't know. I don't know. I, it's that's been the like live 20 action years movie. I'm since... waiting to, for, for them to start making the live action Captain Planet. But anyway, we're Things off we topic as we often oh, are. Oh, it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to yeah. happen. That's, um, brace yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, I noticed that with, with Starfinder, they, you know, they had their, their new class, which were, were wonderful. Like they, they had their roles, but they weren't just reskins of first edition classes, which was nice. And then, you know, they had their races, but then, you know, they just started flooding it through. So you had to, you know, but before then, it was kind of limited. I do the same kind of thing. I learned to play TTRPGs with 3rd edition Eberron. Okay. And I love Eberron. It's probably the nostalgia factor, which happens, you know, back to the Captain Planet thing. But I love those races. And they always felt like the... It always felt like the Eberron races were more powerful anyway, so I just let them into Pathfinder games. And a lot of people play them, and it doesn't actually take a lot of adjustment on our part, but you end up with just these Eberron guys running around Glorian. Yeah, the... I didn't... The races in Starfinder seem okay to me, because literally the way the point-buy system works, you can make any race work like in whatever class like it wasn't like a um like a an ifrit would make like a terrible um uh cleric because of the wisdom penalty like if you if if you want to have like a uh um ifrit um mystic that's fine just put your points in there and you're not like falling behind like you're not struggling you you can you can meet that need and that's what i liked about it so really you know, we've got these 560 different, like, races that you can pick from, and it's really just kind of like the flavor of them. Like, the the attributes, the mechanical parts, they're fine, but, you know, this one can glide, and this one gets a free feat, and this one has dark vision, and, you know, you just kind of pick what you want there. Or this one can breathe underwater, but, you know, we're all wearing environmental suits, so it's very situational stuff. I feel like it works, and I feel like that's part of the reason why they can get away with sort of flooding the market with that, and... Um, that's kind of the reason why I didn't mind making my own Tingu and Tiefling back in 2018 because, you know, I I didn't really feel like I had to worry about balance. They were NPCs to begin with, so, like, the monster building rules for Starfinder are a bit different. But, yeah, like, it, it, back in 2018 when we had one hardcover and one or two AP volumes, like, you, there wasn't much content. Now I'm looking over here at my bookshelf, and I've got eight different Starfinder hardcovers and I've probably got close to 30 AP volumes 
right? Like there, there's just like way more content now. So, um, kit bashing and home brewing several years ago was a necessity. Um, but you know, we'll kind of talk a little bit more about that because it goes beyond Starfinder would have been doing. But yeah, that's kind of the basics. Is you know, we're we're taking stuff from other places and we're jamming them in there. We'll see what works. What are some of the major advantages you found? Obviously, like expanding your your player options is is a big one. You know, everybody wants to be able to play the character that they've got in their brain, and sometimes you have to find a way to make that work in the system. But what are some of the other advantages you have found to, to kit bashing? So, I was able to break this down to three different things. So. One major advantage of kit bashing is it's a way to integrate new rules or systems into a game. Second, it's a way to improve upon or supplement existing rules. And third, it's a way to completely replace rules that you don't like. So we'll talk about the first one. So we can integrate new rules or systems into a game. So um, near the end of our run of Dead Sons, uh, one of the characters who literally their shtick was they wanted to hack the planet. Like, that was kind of like, you know, they, they wanted, they maxed out computers, that was their thing. Their arch nemesis, they had a hacker battle. It, it was a showdown that pitted, you know, the PC who was trying to keep this whole massive ship security from coming down on them versus, you know, their arch nemesis who's trying to spur that on. So they're kind of like in cyberspace, like trying to reroute this everything. So there's not really anything in Starfinder for that. It's much more a um, cyberpunk or Shadowrun type thing where you have like these uh, slicer battles. And I really didn't want it to come down to a series of computers checks because that's kind of Lame. boring. Yeah. So Yeah, the big dramatic moment where it's like, you know, you got all this flavor text and then it comes down to roll computers. Right. Yeah. So I made up a game. Like, I made up a, a game. It was a combination of uh, Yahtzee and some Uno cards. That <laughs> So basically, so here's the gist without getting too much into it. They played Yahtzee, right? But it was competitive Yahtzee. So there's like a the same type of things that you have to get for Yahtzee. Like, there's only so many full houses, so many large straights, all that stuff. So they're competing for these things. But the Uno cards allowed them to change the result of one of their dice. So, like, you would roll something, and if you had, like, the one Uno card, you could change one of those dice to a one. Nice. Or, so, like, it just allowed you different things to, like, augment. So it was like Yahtzee on steroids, but it was also competitive. So we're, like, competing for these different nodes. And once we, like, capped something out, it just did, like, a bunch of damage to the other person. All the while... The rest of the party's fighting off what security forces are already in the room. So now you have, like, three people doing what four should be, while the fourth is over here needing to be protected, doing sick hacker battles in cyberspace. You know, I, I didn't have to worry about balance there, because I figured both of them skill-wise are probably similar. It, which means, you know, if your PC's got, like, a computer of plus 25 and your NPC's similar, I don't want this to be settled by just a straight dice roll. So, you know, it became a game. It became something a bit more competitive. Um, another thing I did was I wanted the characters to be heroes. Like, I'm very pro-player. Like, I want my players to succeed. So I gave them ultimate moves. 
I gave them I gave them bolts. And you know, cool. they could so once a session or once a day or you know, whatever their alt was or they'd spin resolve or something like that, they could use an ultimate. So like I, I've got my uh, the the character that was like our head pilot, I gave him a, a alt called Space Supremacy and it al- it gave him bonus dice when he was on his ship. Or they were on their ship, sorry. Yeah. So when they're on their ship, they get to roll bonus dice. Plus, they could spend a resolve and treat their uh, pilot uh, skill. They could treat their ranks in pilot as being like 50% higher, which meant they could do the crazy stunts earlier. They still didn't change difficulty. They are still hard to do, but yeah. they had opened up to them as well. And that was and because like, they, they wanted to specialize in being a pilot. So I gave them cool pilot stuff. And then it's balanced by the the fact that resolve is such an important resource, right? So, so uh, they were a um, a technomancer, so that was their class, and they wanted to be pilots, so they invested a lot in pilot. Yeah, they had to spend a resource to do that, and it what it wasn't affecting the difficulty as much as it was like giving you access to harder stuff that they figured that you would need a certain number of ranks to even be able to do. Yeah. And, you know, some of the other people were more combat-oriented, so I gave them combat stuff. So I didn't mind to give half the players non-combat stuff and the other half combat stuff because it kind of balanced out what these players wanted to do with their characters. Now, the question comes, Did you? how much of that did you plan out with the character and how much of it was like you handing them a card that said, hey, this is your cool new ability? Um, little column A, little column B. Because when we started the game, I kind of had a, uh, a player questionnaire. Like, tell me about your character. Uh, tell me about some dark secret that they have that they don't want people to find out about. Um, I think I used, like, Jerry Hawkins from per- Penny Arcade, like, his uh, recommendations. So, like, uh, uh, tell me a dark secret. Tell me something they'd be willing to kill over. Um, like just a few things like that, so I could got, kind of get like dark secrets and you know guidance and stuff like that. And uh, again, back when we only had one book, there were only so many options, and I think the players didn't really know what direction they wanted their, their characters to go, because at, you know every four or five sessions, because we were only able to meet like once a month because of everybody's schedule. Um, every four or five sessions, there was a new hardcover. Yeah. So then, like, the player, the, the character would change directions based off the player getting new information because you literally doubled the number of character options you had over the course of a month. So some of that stuff had to change. I had, um, I'll give you a good example. One of our characters, Cena, uh, was a um, halfling operative that kind of wanted to go the sniper route. So the first power I gave Cena was something that allowed them to go on Overwatch, which basically, like, you know, you spend your standard, and then you go on Overwatch, and you can, like, take attacks of opportunity with a bonus or whatever like that. They never used it because what happened was there were so few sniper rifles in Core Rulebook that they never really had a sniper rifle on them, and they couldn't use their... They're so expensive. And they couldn't use their operative attack with the sniper rifle, so they started doing stuff up close. They started using their ghost specialization and doing stuff up close. So eventually, I um, uh, changed their alt to be uh, something that took advantage of this massive stealth that they had and said, if you can, like, there's the operative trick where, like, if you roll stealth and get 20 plus the 
DC of the enemy, then like you can do your operative attack and you do massive damage. I told them if you spend a resolve and beat it by 30, you can full attack them and get operative damage. That's cool. So, very high difficulty, spend a resource, get three attacks on somebody and do massive damage if you're able to pull it off because you still have to hit after that. Yeah. Like, you, you hit the skill, whatever, you still have to hit them and you only get like a plus two bonus for it. So, that's one example. The other example that I had to change was our soldier uh, had done like a phrenic adept. So, I thought that they were going to have some like mental powers that they're going to kind of augment with like their gunplay. And then the direction they went was like, I want to have heavy weapons all the time. So eventually their um, their skill, I, I uh, plucked from Borderlands and gave them Gunzerker and said, okay, you can dual wield heavy weapons now. Like, if you spend a resolve, you can dual wield heavy weapons equal for a number of rounds equal to your con modifier. <laughs> so now it's like, you know, they've got two heavy weapons and just you know, full attack, like three, six attacks or whatever. So, but uh, again, that was as more options were presented to the players, official options, the, the direction of their character changed. So the other two characters, I never changed their, um, alt because it got so much mileage like early on it and their character didn't really change direction as a result. So yeah, that definitely, that definitely changed. But um, some of it was me just sort of creating it from the beginning based off of what they told me their character was going to be like, and then seeing it in practice work or not work, um, adjustments were made. Yeah. How often do you, in your personal experience, how often do you have to adjust the rules that you're kit bashing in? It's amazing how many things I do are kind of like one-time use. Like, I feel like I put like way too much prep and stuff, but... One thing I did was I I did do custom weapons because this game is so much about weapons. And again, when mm. Core Rulebook came out, there was a lot of gaps with weapons. They presented a lot of weapons, but there were a lot of gaps. And it took like a full year until we got Armory. And Armory gave us like 670 new weapons. Yeah. Like I put them into a spreadsheet like one afternoon. I was like, I'm going to put these spreadsheet. I, I think the official number was 666 <laughs> but <laughs> about 670 right yeah. so you know it was a lot but there were still gaps because that number of weapons instead of like satisfying me and saying that's all we need in my mind i like i'm a little bit more analytical i like numbers um it told me oh so here's all the rules i need to be able to create my own weapon i just have to backwards engineer it so I started making my own weapons and started making like weapon lines and everything like that because there were certain weapons that my characters liked. So I started, you know, I had a, uh, one of my NPCs, uh, his name was Sweet Feather. He was a Tengu who had a, uh, who had his own, uh, ship kind of floating around Absalom station called the discerning dagger. It was a, uh, it was an armory. It was his own, like, you know, weapon shop. So they would visit there and get these custom weapons that I put little customizations on and everything. It was a new NPC, somewhere, the, someone personal they could speak with to get their guns, right? Just, you know, interaction for them to have. But, you know, a lot of this stuff I felt like was balanced enough to where, like, I've sort of got a Word document somewhere that's like, any home game I do, this is fair game. 
here's weapons that you can also pick from because I've created them. They look like they work. The the one-off stuff, if it doesn't work, I'll I'll cut it, I'll adjust it, whatever. But everything seems to have worked pretty well. Um, but yeah, that's one thing about kit bashing. Like, don't don't get stuck in the lost uh, the um, oh gosh, what is it called the uh, sunk cost fallacy where I've invested so much time in this, by God, I'm going to use it. Like, <laughs> you know, like. If it doesn't work, get rid of it. You know, cut your losses, learn from it, and you know, just just go with it. But um, yeah, I yeah, tried that... real hard to to introduce skill challenges into my my home games, um, the fourth edition skill challenge concept, and my groups just didn't like it. Uh, you know, and I so I tried adjusting it once, and they just never they just never got into it. I think it was the nebulous nature of like being able to create the the challenge around you as you rolled i eventually just stopped using them because they i thought they were great a great way to you know handle a situation outside you know and let people have some storytelling power but i had to abandon it because nobody else liked it some of it's group too because you you've got to you've got to have the right group for it we had a um an online group for a while and we were just kind of alternating running different uh, adventure paths for pathfinder and um, one of us was running a Jade Regent that has, like, the caravan rules. And I was running a Hell's Rebels, which has, like, the rebellion rules. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you would have, like, one person out of a group of five or six actually be invested in those rules. And it kind of made it frustrating to try to run it. So, like, you, you want to use these rules because they seem neat as a GM when you, like, read it. And, like, okay, it's going to affect the story in these ways. But, like, if you don't have that investment, then it's kind of difficult to kind of go along with that. So you do have to have the right crew. Yeah. Yeah, I I do like those little sub-mechanics because uh, I didn't get to experience the caravan rules. Our GM for Jade Regent just said, this seems like garbage and just pitched them. But I've played Hell's Rebels. I really liked that. I've um, uh, Kingmaker. You know, a King, lot of Kingmaker's those... the big one. Like yeah. that's which I'm GMing Kingmaker, and you know we were real big into the kingdom. But then it was just like I, I don't know if it was just my group did such a good job, or everybody ends up with this situation where they just reached a point where they couldn't fail a single check, and like their economy was in the three hundreds in book three, and it was just like okay, we're done. Like, your kingdom's awesome, and you should be proud, and it's cool, and we're not going to keep track of it anymore, because there's just no point. You guys are... You just tell me what you want your kingdom to be, because this rule set is, again, you know, it's not not working, so we'll just kind of, you know, let you guys storytell it. But it's a... It's a thing that, you know, we've tried a couple... I personally have tried a couple different ways. You know, I mentioned the skills challenges... Um, one of the other ones I used to do was this thing called the Escalation Dice, uh, okay. which was is a big D6 you put in front of the GM screen. And not every fight gets it, but your big fights get it, and it starts off at zero, so you don't put it out the first round, and then every round you tick it up by one. And you the players add that to their attack and damage. Okay. And so do significant enemies. It The fights go a lot more dangerous as you roll through because yeah, that, the longer it goes the more yeah the bigger the threat yeah okay 
that one went pretty well, but then I, I found, again, it was, you know, basically my players were always mopping everything up by round six. You know, it was just like, well, you're tearing through everything, uh, if the fight even makes it to round six. And then I've tried uh, introducing three dragon anti. That just takes way too long. Yeah, certainly. It's a great game, but... Yeah, yeah th I, there's definitely a balance for trying not to uh, dominate... Because, like, I'm sure that I could have probably come up with, like, a way more complicated hacking minigame. But Yahtzee, like, playing a, a hand of Yahtzee, because that's all it was. Like, you do your three rolls, I do my three rolls. Combat round. You do your three rolls, I do my... Like, that's kind of what we did. I mean, you're making a decision, you're rolling dice, and in some ways it was going quicker than the average combat. Like, because they're... 11th 12th level at that point right you have yeah. so many combat options like you don't even know what to do with yourself unless you're a soldier which is just point click but yeah. um that was the thing i kind of discovered was the best ones that i've had experience with are the ones that are just kind of well, like what you said earlier kind of taking a rule that doesn't work very well or that you don't like and adjusting it and something that just goes into the flow of the game rather than adding another chunk just to kind of streamline something, with the exception of yeah. obviously your hacker game was a little different, but that was just mostly. Well, that was not going to be every time you guys role. do a hacking thing. Yeah. So yeah, because this was like the this was book six content. Yeah. Like this was one of our PCs wrapping up a personal story arc. This was like like career finale type thing. Yeah, not the sort like, of thing where it's every time you go to hack a computer, you're going to play this minigame. Right, because that's a computer's check. He was actively being opposed by his nemesis, basically. Um, and uh, one example, I, I wrote some notes here. One example for kit bashing completely replacing rules. Starfinder spaceship combat is really divisive. And I, I don't know how many tables of uh, Starfinder you've played where you've had to deal with spaceship combat. What? But one. Okay. A lot of people don't like it. I had I was very fortunate. The uh, the table of maximum pew pew. It was me and four players. Uh, three of those four players are Starfinder Society GMs. No, that's not so. Nice. They know the rules. They're intimately familiar. And the uh, the other guy that was at the table was pretty familiar with the rules. And but you know wasn't like comfortable with the GMing. He also was like the least local of all these as well like he was commuting to, to play but the other three they're gms they're intimately familiar with the starship rules probably in some cases better than i was so everyone knew the rules they had read the rules they hadn't just come in and like i want to shoot a ship and roll dice but but it was something we talked about because starship rules were so thick in this game and a PC game that a lot of us had played at the time, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Elite Dangerous. Mm -mm. Uh, so Elite Dangerous is a um, sort of spaceship simulator. It's on Steam. Um, recently, well, in the past two, three years, a tabletop RPG version of it came out. Um, you know, nice, thick book, well-written, based off of a flight simulating game. Okay where combat is a big deal like customizing your ship's a big deal combat's a big deal combat in this big thick book three pages 
they've simplified it to the point where you can have like this mechanically complex like game mechanic complex ship with all these different parts the different accelerators the different thrusters the different hulls the different armor package all this stuff combat two three pages and they've simplified it to that point and made it so easy to be able to do combat and handle initiative and handle who's engaged and everything like that and it seemed like a very good way a very good substitute for starship combat and starfinder if people didn't like that combat also um starship combat in starfinder um is sort of like the um millennium falcon scale where your crew is about five six people yeah versus um or like a firefly type scale where you've got like half dozen people are kind of like your crew Versus like Starship Enterprise, where you have like hundreds or thousands of people, and all the way down to, you know, Luke Skywalker, Red Five, one person in an X Wing. And that's kind of what Elite Dangerous is. It's like one person has their ship, that's their baby. So that type of Starship combat might appeal to different people. Like, I want my own spaceship, and that way we can make it a bit more tactical with, you know, small scale that way. So. Yeah, especially it, in Starfinder, you, you basically can't do anything when you're piloting by yourself. Yeah, because there's rules for, you know, small ships like that where, like, one or maybe two people. But, like, trying to pilot a ship and gun at the same time with one is kind of miserable. And to also do, like, sensors and all that stuff. Like, I get it, I understand it, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. And, yeah. like, if you're the person that's, like, I'm not good at combat, but also I don't have one of the three relevant skills for starship combat, so I guess I'm just going to try rolling diplomacy every time and root everyone else on. Like, it, it, it can get boring. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, that, and I know they expanded that in the operate one of the operations manuals, but... Yeah, there's, um... It was a starship-specific one, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a starship operations manual. I'm looking at it right over there. And but, but even then, I think they basically just expanded like some of the roles. So it's like, oh, you don't have one of those skills. Well, do you have one of these skills? Yeah, but they already took like a 30, 40 page section on Starship Combat and gave it its own hardcover. Yeah. Whereas you've got a different game that like on PC, all you do is fly around and they condensed it down into something simple that works. Yeah. Which so sounds like an easy substitute of being like, OK, ignore this read these three to four pages yeah so that's a case of replacing something entirely i don't like these rules we replace it entirely you um you know you had the gm that did that for jade region maybe they replaced it with something else like even if it was a simple role mechanic like i, I don't like this let's do something else kingmaker you could like you know all of these different games you could like take something else um the the mass combat rules that were introduced um uh, circa 2005, I forget which book had, was it Ultimate Campaign that introduced the um, mass yes. combat rules? Yeah, okay. Ultimate Campaign slash Book Five of Kingmaker. Interesting idea, but some people didn't like it, and there are games that already do that. So, you know, if you want to do your big combat scenario like that, like okay, we're gonna pull out this book instead. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, yeah, we're gonna I've play the... this game. Yeah, specifically for that, I've got the Strongholds and Followers by Matt Colville that I'm I'm going to use those mass combat rules because I, I just find them to be a little bit smoother. 
Look at you, Kit bashing already. You didn't yeah. even know it. Well, <laughs> I, I will admit, listeners, uh, when I got uh, suggested Kit bashing for the topic of this conversation, I was like, "Oh yeah, that sounds great." And then ten minutes later, I was like, "Okay, so I thought I knew what this was, but I don't think I do." So uh, <laughs> you you've been doing it and didn't realize it. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things, you know. It's like when I was a kid, and then somebody was like, "Hey, you're pretty awesome. You're acting like an awesome dude." And it was like, "I always." I've always been this way. I just didn't know yep. how to name. <laughs> yep. Uh, anyway, so we've gone over a lot of the advantages of it. And not to sound like the negative Nancy, but what are some of the disadvantages of it? Like, um, does it ever lead to power gaming or introduce a rule that you are like, this doesn't really work, but the players were like, no, we love this. Don't take it away. Yeah. So I, I was able to boil this down to three different questions. Is it a good idea? Is it balanced and is it overly complicated? When I'm in, like when I'm focused on a game, like I'm, I'm running it, I've got a good group, that's all I think about in the evenings, that's what I go to bed thinking about, when I'm at work sort of, you know, like during a lull, like I'm sort of brainstorming, I'm always trying to churn ideas. I've always, always got something on the back burner. You know, I'll throw it down into like a Google Doc and maybe come back to it later, or maybe that's all I need to do is like write a few sentences and like, okay, that's out of my system, go on to the next. So, yeah, sometimes I'll have wild ideas about game mechanics and I'll try to figure out how to implement them into a game. But the problem is that usually the same people that I would normally vet these ideas with or use as a sounding board are also in the game. So, I get that, yeah. It's kind of difficult to vet some of these ideas without ruining the surprise. And sometimes things that I think are fun might not be for others. Yeah, that's that's the thing. And you know, I I personally I personally don't like it when somebody comes to me with a rules change in the middle of a game as a surprise. Like to me that just be like, uh no, like talk to me about it ahead of time. Great. Yeah. But you know, springing that stuff on me. Uh, mm, I, I would not appreciate that, I know. Yeah. Um, one thing I did do, and, and I at the beginning of the, um, the AP, I made each of my uh, players like uh, a three-ring binder folder. And I put a copy of like the uh, player folio. So I had a PDF copy. I made a copy of the PDF folio for them. So if they wanted to use like the big PDF folio, that was available to them. It had pockets because every now and then, if I had new rules or came up with something new, I'd make a print off and like, here you go. So they had like documentation of it. Like it, it looked like we we're going to like a, a uni class or something. Like it was crazy. They do that for my, my, my kindergartner. <laughs> that's, that's sort of what they, they do for that. Yeah, but like I mean, I wanted I wanted it to be um, helpful to them. That way, they could keep their character sheet and everything nice and together and everything. But I knew that I was probably going to be giving out like a lot of paper and stuff. A lot of the prep I did, like um, when items dropped, like I actually made item cards. Like here's the the grenades, here's the ammo, here's all this stuff, and I'd paperclip them and I'd put them in the area in the book where like this would drop. So they'd kill an enemy. Here's your loot. Like, you know, like slide it across the table. I would read it for the audience, but instead of having someone have to sit there and like two flash grenades, two, you know, like here's your stuff. And then, like, when they use that item, just like rip it in half, whatever. 
that's cool. No, that's a good idea. It, it, I mean, it's probably took a lot of work of like copy, paste, cut it all out, and all that other stuff. But it, I'm sure it made the game itself go a lot smoother. It does. Like that is an instance of investing a lot of GM prep into something that's going to save a lot of time at the table. Because this is a group of people that I'm not able to get to the table for like, you know, a month at a time. I want to be respectful of their time and I want to get through content. You know, we yeah. want to get through content. We don't want to spend 20, 30 minutes doing bookkeeping or, you know, like a cumulative 30 minutes just writing down like all this, these guns and stuff. So like I'd slide them across. Once we got to the upper level stuff, like I started putting like levels, page numbers, everything like that. So like it was just, you know, e easy for you to get access to that at the table. I, I didn't want to waste their time. You know, I didn't want to waste listeners time because that's not very good listening for a uh, podcast listener, like having to hear all this, like, yeah, so the this gun is on, you know, Armory page 32, and it's a level, like, Israeli available. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it also stops, you know, because I know some podcasts will just hold all of that off until it's uh, off mic. But then, you know, you get this cool item, and it's like, well, if we're going to wait till the end of the episode to look at all this up, I, I may want to use this item now. Yeah, it could be and, cool. And that's stuff that I would read off, but like at the same time, like the players already had like that access to that. Yeah. And actually the the players would like when they leveled up, instead of doing it at home, they would just like hang out at the house for an extra thirty minutes or so and level their character there or just discuss options and that became bonus footage. So because if people were really interested in the mechanics of the characters and stuff, they could just hear them talk about, like, you know, like, looking through the books and stuff. So, like, I just throw that up as bonus footage. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, other disadvantages, is it balanced? This is the first time some of these ideas are seeing light of day. So you don't know if they're balanced until, you know, this session. And sometimes it's, like, live on podcast when it happens. Yeah. Um, but I imagine you, you also have to have a good group who's willing to like try out a rule and then if it doesn't work, scrap it or change it yeah. and stuff like well, that. And, and that was a nice thing about like our group with Dead Sons is that we had three other GMs. Several of them have experience with game development. Like they, they understand the why, right? Like they understand why this is the case. You, you have to lean on your experience as a GM and your rules mastery to make a good guess. Like, you you have uh, rules mastery with um, Pathfinder First Ed, so you could make a really good guess as to what, like, a, um, a, a 4,000 gold piece magic item might look like. Yeah. You know, or like... What you, a fair DC for a skill check is, or what right. a poison should do, or stuff like that. Yeah, you've got, you've got a fair idea. Like it, and you could make something unique. You, you could have a fair idea of, of what that looks like. Um, but once it comes into contact with players, um, especially the clever ones, like it becomes obvious where the broken bits are. You can go back to the drawing board, work with the player to balance it a bit better. But you know, it's it's going to take some time. Um, last is it overly complicated? So overly complicated mechanics might not be for everybody. We talked about Kingmaker. We talked about Hell's Rebels. We talked about Jade Regent. Um, you know, we talked about uh, Starship Combat. Um, there were some ideas that I thought might be interesting. Like I actually like custom made D20s. I don't have one in reach right now. Well, let me 
one second. So I custom made like these D20s here, right? Cool. Like I painted them and everything and had these big plans as to what I could do with them and gave each of my players one at session one and never touched them after. Real quick here, for the listeners, uh, we just got shown a D20 where the sides were painted a variety of primary colors. Yeah, and there's also some uh, designs and stuff there. So, and I I gave a printout with like, you know, what the colors and and the designs looked like and all that stuff and never used it because I, I had this idea of like, oh, so like maybe they could roll that with certain weapons and it would be like different critical effects or whatever. And I never implemented it. And then Armory came out with all the weapon mods and stuff and kind of did sort of what I was thinking about anyway. So it was like, well, that, <laughs> you know. Just that, didn't fly. In the yeah. Way. So, you know, it was something. And that's one idea that I scrapped. Like, I figured, okay, this is probably overly complicated. We don't need something that does this. Just, you know, what? Just, just scrap it. You would have uh, asked about power gaming. You know, I... Like I said, I'm pro player. If you wanted to call some power gaming, let it. Yeah, I'm in the player's corner. Um, some of the earlier weapons that I made for Dead Suns were a bit broken, but the nice thing about like Starfinder is that every level these weapons start to get a little bit dated. <laughs> so eventually they're going to be replacing weapons pretty soon. Some of the weapons they held on to for a while... You know, if you want your players to be powerful, like, you know, let it rock. (laughs) That's like my, you know, and if it's too much, like, that's why I wasn't too worried about weapons is I knew that, like, eventually there's going to be, like, a new set available to them that they're probably going to want that's got better damage or does this or does that or anything like that. So I I knew that they were going to be dated quickly. That's fair. A little bit more difficult and some of the other uh, versions, some of the other games, I imagine, but then again, there's also some games that, you know, weapons are much more nebulous and it'd be a lot easier on, but it's it's definitely one of the things, it sounds like, with kit bashing, you have to make sure that your players understand that these are essentially play tests. You know, you're introducing something new, yeah. and if it just really doesn't work, they have to be willing to give it up. Yeah, and I'm... And I'm always going to be pro player. If I mess up, like I'm going to admit it, and I'm going to backtrack, or I'm going to rule in the player's favor or anything. If I realize that, you know, the I gave the boss like way too many hit points or anything, or if I miscalculate or something like that, I, I'll make good on it. Like that's the other thing too is, you know, you, you don't want to um, infringe upon the goodwill of the players that are sitting there letting you experiment upon them. Oh yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, when you're introducing things on just your side of the screen, you want to make sure that, yeah, it's not going to unbalance the game in your way, too. Right. Uh, one of the questions you asked was uh, what controls I try to put on things. Um, again, now, I've been... Listeners, just to let you guys know, uh, I send an outline here to Jared. That's what yeah. he's saying some of this stuff, even though you haven't heard me say these things. Uh, yeah. I sent a basic outline earlier. I know you'd mentioned power gaming. I forgot about the, the control part there, so... Um, so I've been GMing for like almost close to a decade. Most of my experiences with Paizo products. So I'm, I've got that comfort level. Like I know what Paizo is trying to do when they do particular stuff. I understand the importance of 
you know, the different types of bonuses, what a plus two feels like in combat, what a plus two feels like it with a skill check, um, why certain skills cap out, like why, you know, BAB does, like, you know, spells and all, like all this stuff I'm, I feel like I, I understand. So, um, you, you really got to lean on that as like your controls is like, you know, the, I'm, I have a good feeling, like, if you're not super familiar with the rules, you know, maybe be a bit more conservative with what you do. But, you you know, one of my sessions, like, they had helped, like, a crime syndicate, and I gave them just, like, a boatload of drugs. I made up, like, six, eight different types of drugs for them to use with some pretty gnarly penalties. Some of them used the drugs, though, because, like, there were some pretty cool effects. But, like, yep, here you all know the addiction rules. Here's the DCs and everything. I'm going to tell you way ahead of time how bad this stuff is. What you put yourself into. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it, it's going to be no surprise. Here's the benefit. Here's the penalty. Here's the DC. Like, it's, you know, you know what this stuff does. Like, there was stuff that was giving them insane bonuses, but had, like, DC 25 or something like fort saves did not get addicted like just really like gnarly penalties but you know sometimes you want to be able to take two standard actions in a round <laughs> like you know <laughs> so listeners you will once again notice the theme here of the importance of communicating things with your players between the players and the GM yeah this I mean, this will keep coming up trust me yeah, and I know, like, there, there might be some surprise, like, oh, yes, this drug will let you go faster. You know, and, like, yeah, you get a standard action, I'll make a fort safe. Like, you know, there's, there's a place for surprises like that, but, you know, in some cases, like, I just really wanted them to know, like, this was, this is what you're in for. Like, if you want to use it, fine, it's here. I'm giving it to you for free. <laughs> and do with it what you want. Um, you said, um, I don't remember if all of this came before the call or uh, when we were talking then or after uh, during the initial introductions and everything, but you'd mentioned you're at least tangentially familiar with a lot of other non-Paizo systems. So have you found any... I mean, obviously, Paizo systems are very rules-heavy. They're very mechanical systems, you know, uh, whereas, like, you've got things like Fate... Or even like Powered by the Apocalypse, which are much more rules light yeah. systems, especially like Fate Accelerated is, you know, it's like five pages or whatever. Are there any systems that you find are better or worse for kit bashing? So I thought about this for a while and it took me, uh, it took me a while to figure out what worked well, what worked different. And I think that the more rules heavy games, sorry, the rules heavy games are easier to kit bash. Because there's way more fiddly bits. Yeah. So things like uh, words of power, non-vancian magic, firearms, psionics, martial arts, styles, food mechanics. Like these are things that people years and years ago kit bashed and then developer thought, that's a good idea. Let's put it in our game. Like psionics have always been like, you know, every game's like, let's put psionics in it. Yeah. Or every game's like, why are there no guns? Or, you know, or I like words of power. Like, this is stuff that people have sort of home-ruled and developed or have existed in previous versions that they want to integrate into their own game. And again, if you've got a rules-heavy game already where there are these fiddly bits, things that people want to change or augment or anything like that, that's easy to do. 
Yeah, it's almost, you know, there, since there's so many more rules, there's examples of how something different should work. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about Powered by the Apocalypse games, because there's... Uh, I've never played Apocalypse World, but I've played several other Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, one of the fun ones is uh, Worldwide Wrestling. Um, it's... Uh, the the second edition's coming out soon. It had a very successful uh, Kickstarter. Blades in the Dark is technically powered by the apocalypse but they've kit bashed it so much that now that they're it has its own like um sort of blades in the dark like powered by blades in the dark type thing like it's it's not even it's kit ba- they kit bashed powered by the apocalypse so much it's no longer powered by the apocalypse because powered by the apocalypse was so rules like to begin with any changes that you make it doesn't take too many before you've just created your own game yeah um, there's another good one. There's so many like one-page games, brochure games, zine games that are like 20 pages or less. You're dangerously close to just creating a new game if you kit bash it too much. There's a, a very good example. There's a, a fun little game called Tunnel Goons, and all the rules fit in like one page. And it, it's a very simple system. You've got like three different stats and you, you have like a weapon and, and a shield and all this stuff and you just roll against the DC but the whole game's like a page right so mm-hmm. if you kit bash a one page game and you've doubled the rules essentially you've made a new game yeah now, now you're a game designer you're not a kit basher you're a game designer <laughs> at that point you should just make your own one page game because you came up with a mechanic that you know, equals the complexity of this entire game, essentially. So, yeah, it, it it's still kit bashing, but at the yeah, you just became a game designer at that point. Yeah, which, you know, is kind of ironic, considering we're both real big into Paizo stuff, and Paizo was basically a kit bashing of 3rd edition that became its own yeah. game. So, I don't yeah, know that... if that's actually ironic or not. Maybe Alanis Morissette ironic, but... So, basically, you know, the more rules there are, the easier it is to substitute or add... And, you know, it's I mean, even with Paizo itself is first edition is a great example of this because you started off with your stereotypical fantasy and then you ended up with, you know, more things, a little bit more. And then they're like, OK, well, here's like you said, words of power, hero points, gunslingers, technology. Uh, I think it was season six or seven of society that was like, hey, here's all the technology stuff. Yeah, it was like um, I think it was um, I think it was six because that's where um trial by machine i think it was 601 trial by machine i ran that at a gen con uh, 2014 like four times mm-hmm. and every time i ran it it was worse and worse for the players the <laughs> the less experienced the players were the better they did oh that's the weird. last time i ran it was um at a table of gms and like it was vcs vls i was outranked like enormously it was people that knew this game better than i did they about wiped like halfway through much less the final fight of that game right because they were just because they were having a good old time role playing and stuff and one of them like accidentally opened an airlock and like almost suffocated (laughs) the whole party and then there was this fight with the uh the variant scarecrow that was just like wiping people because no one had anything it could beat hardness like it was it was great but yeah. yeah and then you know we got our um oh what was the book that introduced like the six um psionic classes like your psychic and your oh, the, uh, uh, the kineticist the cult guide yeah which i'm gonna point out they're they're psychic classes not psionics right they are 
Yeah. And then you had uh, Ultimate Intrigue that brought on like the Vigilante, and like they they have branched. I mean, there's yeah. what like ten plus years of hardcover games. Yeah, Ultimate Magic with Spell Blights and Words of Power and every adventure. Well, not every, but a lot of the adventure pads have their own sub mechanic within it. Oh it's, yeah, like the the last like eight pages or so of just like additional stuff like it's yeah there there's a lot to add in and uh, you know it's a great resource if you want to do your own stuff is to look to see where they've started branching out and doing other things you know i remember i think it's ultimate combat has all their stuff for like you know okay yeah here's your eastern weapons because people love you know japanese stuff but then here's stone bone bronze you know like other 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 materials ages of of technology that you could you know go into all in there and even with gunslinger you know you had everything from uh a single shot blunderbuss to you know revolvers from the old west right the the more that's there the easier it is to to kind of erase a bit and write in something else without anybody noticing yeah like I'll, i'll use starfinder let's just take the core rule book of starfinder if we replaced the spaceship combat, like replaced it completely with something like, say, Elite Dangerous, that game's still Starfinder. Yeah. Like, there's so much content, like, you'd have to replace a whole lot more for it to stop looking like Starfinder. You take a game like Tunnel Goons, you take a game like Apocalypse World, or, uh, I mean, Fate Accelerated and Cypher System, those are kind of unfair because they're sort of blank slates anyway. Like, Fate Accelerated's like, you can run this, but feel free to steal from Fate Core, and you're still fine. Yeah, the more fiddly bits, the easier to kitbash, because everything else is just going to be game development at that point. So, what are your closing thoughts on kitbashing? What what is left to be said in your mind? Kitbashing is wonderful. I'm going to leave you with my, my controversial hot take, okay? There's no such yeah. Here we go. Children, close your ears. Yeah, there's no such thing as a perfect RPG. Uh, I'm waiting for the controversial part. Yeah, right. See, like that. That's as controversial as I'll get. Um, You know, someone saying that something's their favorite RPG is super subjective, and there's a whole wide world of RPGs to pluck from, from the big companies we all know and love to the five dollar indie darlings on Drive Through RPG and Itchio, like that. Just Everyone's got good ideas. Like, take the ones you like, put them together. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the favorite games I ever played was Dread Light, which is played with a Jenga set. Yeah, it's super super quick and easy, and it's a lot of fun. And there are a lot of games now that have kitbashed that Dread Theory, or or like the the Jenga board, uh, into like their RPG. So. Um, there was an RPG, I forget the developer, uh, but the RPG was called The Wretched. Now, imagine a scenario in which, like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Alien franchise, but imagine that you are alone on a ship with some type of xenomorph skittering on the outside, and your ship is adrift, and you either have to repair it well enough to be able to start to send yourself towards civilized space, or repair the uh, emergency beacon. And the mechanic is that you um, draw cards from a deck, and you sort of um, narrate 
these particular situations that happen to you. Sometimes you roll dice. Sometimes you draw from the Jenga tower. Uh, if that Jenga tower falls, the whole integrity of your ship has gone to zero and you die. Really, listeners, what you should be getting out of this is looking. If you want to kit bash and you're not sure what to do, look in your game closet. Yeah, like um, I mean the the hacking sub game. Like I said, that was a uh, Yahtzee, which everyone's got five d six and uh, some uh, Uno cards. We um, Jenga boards are a good option. Yeah, if you don't like something in your RPG of choice, change it. And like you're saying, you don't have to recreate the wheel in some cases. Because some of these like $5 um, itch releases or $5 drive through RPG releases, um, there is a... Um, I'm not sure when this episode is going to go up for you, but Kickstarter currently has a, a zine quest going on right now. And I've spent an embarrassing amount of money on it because it's people that have just created these like short zine style games like there's a good words of power one there's a uh, mothership funnel adventure that's coming out here shortly there's um one wild game that is basically um ice skaters creating sigils of power on the ice uh there's like it's it's the wild west out there dude like oh, yeah. there's um uh, but some of this stuff like you know, I'm not into ice skating, but I like motorcycles. You know, that's kind of the same. Like, you could integrate these things into other games. Like, you could, you know, take these ideas, change them a little bit, integrate them to the game of your choice. Like, dirt it, bikes out on the the uh, Arctic Circle. Exactly, or like just out in the mud or whatever. Like, you know, like um, guys with their uh, Harleys trying to fight off like these big, you know, gargantuan creatures that you accidentally summoned because you played your uh guitar too ha hard you know like just whatever you know like some metalocalypse stuff going on here but so listeners this we're currently recording february 6 20 uh 2021 so i'm also not quite sure when this is going to come out so if you go to hear this and go to jump on kickstarter and it's not there anymore uh that's why yep uh, probably this stuff might eventually end up on itch.io. I mean, this is the, I think the big thing a lot of these people are trying to do is use Kickstarters for like a physical release. I imagine you'll be able to get these PDFs once they uh, become available, but there's really good ideas like the words of power one, for example, I'm not sure if there's a game that's going to be attached to that as much as it's a supplement for like, a different magic system for whatever your existing game is it's sort of like system agnostic or you could probably turn it system agnostic if you wanted to you know uh fifth ed's probably the most popular rpg out there i'm in a fifth ed system like um group right now but it's people are like trying to bend it to its will all the time like if fifth ed were perfect then people wouldn't be trying to you know push Cthulhu in there, push guns into it, push martial arts into it, push all these things into it, right? So, like, branch out. Like, there's some cool stuff out there, and th there is something, like, that That player at the table that isn't into combat, I guarantee there's an RPG out there that they would absolutely love. So, like, branch out, you know, take stuff from other game systems. You, you are not married to that rule book you know, the, they're not going to come and arrest you if you don't run it 
you know, as written. You can you can take your two favorite games and make them kiss if you want to. It's fine. Yeah, uh, I always make the joke like, if you change the rules, the Paizo police are not going to come knocking on your door. Right. This isn't society play. Now, if you're playing society, yeah, there's rules you got to follow. No, yeah, it's, that's it, a whole but, separate, a whole separate yeah. uh, uh, bag of cats, as it were. Yeah. But but we're not talking about society play here. This is at your table, making making whatever adventures you want. But yeah, that's. And one of the best ways I find to do it is like just to try some of the other game systems. I know uh, my my I live I do this vicariously through another podcast called Critical Hit, uh, and I've listened to them play Fourth Edition, Fifth Edition, uh, Pathfinder. They're playing Starfinder, uh, two different Cthulhu games, um, Fate, powered by two different Powered by the Apocalypse games. Like they've they've yeah. got a wide plethora of choices for you to you know go through and listen to if you don't have the time to play these um yeah. go on youtube go on twitch when things calm down and it's safe to you know go to conventions try to find yourself a good local con like we've got a we've got charcon here what what uh what con are you repping right here farmageddon in farmer city illinois all right uh, farmageddon Yep, it's uh, it's right in central Illinois, right off the interstate. Come come check us out. We've got um, Charcon locally here in Charleston, West Virginia. It's located at the uh, Clay Center right in the heart of Charleston. It's a beautiful venue for it. Can't wait to get back to it once things settle down. But it's a good way to go meet like-minded people and do demos of these games. I've run demos at you know, these places. I've run demos of... Um, of Fate, I've run demos of Tales from the Loop, Things from the Flood, uh, the Dragon Age RPG. Um, you know, I would have probably ran some like Aegon this uh, past year if you know things had worked out a little bit differently. But it's an opportunity for you to try out these things if you're the type of person that prefers to do them hands on. Um, if you haven't played any of the big games like Fifth Ed, Pathfinder, Starfinder, the um, organized play campaigns that all of these games have are great opportunities to kind of jump in because they don't require you to have like a dedicated group. So there, there's plenty of stuff out there. Like you know, branch out. Um, One of the things I discussed with Jason Lillis last time was the concept. You know, if you go and go to a convention and you talk to these people, we're all passionate enough that we're spending extra money to go and play this game. We would love to teach you how to enjoy this hobby that we love. Yeah, yeah. I go to Charcon and pay, you know, uh, admission cost to go volunteer and run stuff. Like, yeah. you know, because I want to share this game with people. I like this game so much. I want to share it with you. Uh, I'm big into Tales from the Loop and Things from the Flood. Very different rule set. Very much more collaborative storytelling than some of the other RPGs. And I've learned lessons from it. Like, I've learned things that you can do with Tales from Loot, Things from the Flood. I've learned from things that, like, Blades in the Dark or Powered by the Apocalypse do to help improve my GM skills for Tales from Loot, Things from the Flood, even Pathfinder, Starfinder. Like, you you learn from them, you, and you, as a GM, it is a very good exercise to check out some of these different systems because, again, I was exclusively Pathfinder for probably four or five years and just branching out to like my next which was like uh fate core fate accelerated i learned a lot about game design stuff from that so like you if you want to develop your skills as a gm 
this is a great way to do it. And then by extension, you're going to start developing your kit bashing skills, be, skills because you are by extension becoming a better GM by doing these things. So, you know, get out there and learn. There's so many cheap uh, games available. Like you don't have to break the bank. You, I know core rule books for, you know, uh, Wizards of the Coast and Paizo products can be like 40, 50, 60 bucks. You don't have to break the bank to pick, check out a new game. Like yeah. there, there's budget friendly stuff. If you check out itch.io, there's some games that are giving out like community copies for free. Like you don't have to, you know, you don't have to break the bank. And yeah, I, I've gotten stuff from Drive Through RPG and River Horse games. Those are where I get a lot of my PDF games. Okay. So, but uh, all right. Well, we are a little bit over our usual runtime, which is usually a good thing. It means we've had a good conversation. Uh, do you have any other questions for me? Any other little bits that you want to cover? Nothing I can think of right now. I just want to, um, you know, again, share my appreciation for having me on the show. Glad to, again, talk shop and uh, um, glad to be able to share what knowledge, however limited it may be, <laughs> of kit bashing and my experiences with it. Well, I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I know I certainly took some good points away from it. And uh, other than that, thank you for coming and being here with me, and we will see you next time, bashers. Shield Bash is made in association with Knights of the Octagon and Farmageddon Gaming Convention. Find us online at shieldbash.net, on Facebook at Shield Bash, on Twitter at Bash Shield, and on YouTube at Shield Bash. Music by Lee Rosevere. Serpent Skull and Pathfinder are the property of Paizo Publishing Incorporated. Leave a comment on iTunes for a chance to hear us read it out on the podcast. Questions and comments can be sent to shieldbashpodcast at gmail.com.